just a moment, we'll dismiss the younger folks for Sunday school. Let's just bow our heads and pray together and start our service all right. Father, please help us this morning. Help the adults, the younger folks. Have your hand upon each teacher now as we speak forth the words of God. Help us to do it clearly, boldly. And Lord, we know that you have to do the work of getting this seed deep into the hearts of the people and bringing forth fruit. Please help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, younger folks, if you would please make your way out that back door. We have two Sunday school classes for you. So whatever you need, you're welcome to partake of this. Our Sunday school teachers will guide you to the correct classroom. see Paul mention that a few times we'll talk not today I don't see us getting that far today but we'll talk about the the biblical idea of perfection and what that actually means so verse 1 Paul says this is the third time I am coming to you we've mentioned this in passing a few other times Paul's mentioned his first two visits to the Corinthians this is now he's getting ready to visit them the third time and there's a bit of a warning that he's going to give them here that if you guys don't fix this problem in the congregation, when I get there, I'm going to deal with it. And I'm not going to be so nice about it. He's already tried the nice, calm, soft, gentle approach. It hasn't seemed to get the job done. So now he's saying, guys, if that doesn't work, I have some other options. This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, Paul's chosen a very interesting verse to use here. Take your Bibles and come back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And of course, you can hold your place in Corinthians. We'll be back there momentarily. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and get with me verse number 6. All right, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. This is where we first see this verse quoted about in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word gets established which by the way is a wonderful principle for you to apply in your lives right you you want to be careful about somebody coming to you with what could potentially be misinformation disinformation which is a purposeful lie you don't want to just take one witness 
If it's something serious, well, anything for that matter, probably better to check it with two or three sources at least just to verify what you're hearing is true. So uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, you can see Moses writes here, At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. So one person an isolated accusation getting made, you do not convict based on that. You, you need to have more evidence than just that. Uh, just a couple pages to the right, chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Same idea. He's, he says here, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established and then if, if just for interest sake if you want to read on further it talks about if somebody brings a false accusation trying to get this other person in trouble they take it to the court system and they they rule that it was a false accusation well then the the accuser actually gets the proposed punishment so if the false accuser says this guy killed someone else well that's worthy of the death penalty if that turns out to be false, the guy that brought the accusation gets the death penalty. That would sure squash a lot of gossip, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right? You, you, would, you would think twice before you offer exaggerated stories that might get other people in trouble because that trouble might come back on you. Now, you can see the principle that Paul is using. You don't just go by one, but two or three witnesses, every word gets established. This is kind of in a courtroom setting, right? Come back to 2 Corinthians 13. The way Paul is using it, he is adapting the verse, not, not trying to change the, the meaning of it. He's just adapting it to his own situation. This is now the third time that he's coming to visit the Corinthian people. So he's saying, guys, if you didn't take me seriously the first time, and maybe you didn't get me clearly the second time, this is now the third time, the third witness, the third time I'm going to bear witness to this message of the gospel and to my apostleship and so forth. So hopefully by now you see how serious I am. It's not like I came through town, just said this once and then went on doing something else with my life. I'm quite serious. No matter how much uh, blowback I get from this, how much negative feedback I get from doing what I'm doing, I'm not stopping this ministry. I'm going to keep preaching this because I am convinced that it is true. Now, in the Corinthian church, not all of them, but some were against Paul. He had several enemies in that congregation. And everywhere Paul went, this was, this was the case. If Paul was not 100% convinced that what he was preaching was true, chances are he would have quit preaching it long ago. We, we saw in chapter 12, Paul explained all the trouble that he had met with, right? He was whipped 195 times. Five different occasions, he got 39 lashes with the whip. He was stoned to death, and then God raised him from that. Shipwrecked in the, night, uh, in the deep, a night and a day. He was uh, left out in the wilderness in some cases. No food, no drink. He went through some tough things, and yet he kept preaching. This shows just how serious Paul was about this message, how, how much truth there was involved in it. Uh, come back to Acts chapter 14, if you would. Let me show you one other occasion where Paul does this. Acts 14. In verse number three. 
Acts 14, verse 3. <clears throat> Forgive me, let's, let's read just a, a couple verses with this. Let's start at verse 1 so we can get some context. It came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the, Gen, uh, of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil-affected, against the brethren. You, you see there's some friends, some enemies amongst the people that Paul's preaching to. Verse 3, long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So God had Paul and Barnabas stay there an extra long time just to prove and confirm the truth of this message. Even though Paul, like I said, had negative feedback and, and enemies and people, their minds are evil affected, Paul's not going to quit preaching it. If I can use this same principle of people who are serious about what they're saying, they're not going to stop saying it just because they find some tough times. They're going to stick with it. Let's take this out of the religious realm for a moment and put it into a relationship setting. Ladies, maybe some young man will approach you and say, you are the greatest thing that God ever did. An angel has fallen from heaven and here you are. I mean, you, oh my goodness, I can't, you drive me crazy. I cannot put into words how much I love you. Oh, oh I, 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 I don't even know how to talk. I, mean, I love you. And they just go crazy. And that sounds good. And you're like, wow, this guy, man, this is impressive. He really likes me. And, and people come by the office sometimes, Brother Mike, you know, how do I know how serious he is? Wait for a bad day. Wait to see him on a bad day. Wait until you say no to his advances once. And all of a sudden, he might start singing a different tune. Because <laughs> he's saying this, maybe th this is a means to an end. Right? He has some other goal in mind. And when you shut the door on that goal, all of a sudden, he's no longer saying those sweet things. Now, he wasn't serious about the message to begin with because he met some negative feedback. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's all he needed. No, okay, well then never mind. I'll go love somebody else. Do you see that, how it would relate to this? If Paul goes to one town, preaches the gospel, and they say, Paul, that's nonsense. We don't like you. And he says, okay, because I'm not popular, I'm not preaching anymore. And he quits. Well, then Paul probably wasn't in it for the right things to begin with, see? The fact that everywhere he went, he got negative feedback <clears throat> sorry and yet he sticks with it pretty serious about what he's saying all right so come back to second corinthians 13 <clears throat> and verse number two every time <laughs> it's a running joke in my house that my wife she fills my water bottle every sunday and every sunday it's it's on accident i'm sure that she fills it all the way to the top and my first sip poof, goes down my tie every sunday <laughs> I love it. All right, verse 2. <laughs> I know she's not trying to do it. It's, it's just sweet. All right, that, that's how you know that we love each other, right? A little bit of water on the tie. I still love her. <laughs> sweet thing still coming out my mouth, right? Amen. Verse 2, I told you before and foretell you. Uh, I, 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 so he's saying past tense, I told you before, and now I'm telling you before I get there again. So past and future here. <clears throat> As if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. 
That's a long, fancy way of saying, guys, those of you that have been walking according to the flesh, living in sin, and then bitter at me and trying to blame me for certain things, I've tried to straighten that out before, but I'm telling you, if you don't get this straightened out, I'm going to show up and I'm not holding back. We, that's the modern way of saying I will not spare. I won't hold anything back. You're going to get the full force of God's authority that he's given me to preach. So earlier in the epistle, Paul gives them the choice, right? I can come with the spirit of meekness and love, or I can come with the rod, one or the other. He, in 1 Corinthians, he gave them that choice. So now he's saying, guys, third time, I'm bringing the rod, bringing the rod. Uh, this is Bible study hour, so find Proverbs chapter 15. Let's have you actually look at this verse. This is a wonderful verse to apply, I would almost say, on a daily basis in your life. Proverbs 15, verse 1. If somebody has wronged you or said something that didn't sit well with you, maybe confused you, right? They said something, you thought, man, I, I wasn't expecting that comment. How do I deal with this? This should be your first option. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Right? Somebody's done something you don't like. First option, tread lightly, go softly. Ask some questions and say, maybe I didn't understand. Could, can we talk about this? And, and, and go gentle, right? Gentleness, meekness, first option. However, there are some times if you are trying to break a rock, you can't hit it with a feather. <laughs> Amen? Those of you, you gentlemen that work in the mines, am I right? Who mines with a feather? <laughs> you, don't, you don't drill a mine with a feather. Sometimes you got to pull out that old hammer. Now, when you're dealing with people first option gentle but sometimes that doesn't get the job done now try gentle try meekness try patiently dealing with it but eventually right after long suffering has had its chance you might have to give warning hey if if you don't respond to my efforts of making this right i'm gonna have to pull out the rod we're gonna have to deal with this a little more boldly a little more on the nose. So look at Isaiah chapter 58. Now, just for the sake of time, we'll not run all these references, but you look through the Bible at how God has dealt with his people. Whether it's a, a corporate situation, he's dealing with the entire nation or entire group, or just an individual. When somebody has gone sideways with God, he will usually come very gently to that person or that group and, and warn them and Give them uh, an admonition. Say, guys, this, this isn't right. We need to fix this up. And that's all that it is. Just a very gentle reproof. But after prophet, after prophet, after prophet comes and says, hear ye now, thus saith the Lord, this is wrong. This, after enough time, God says, okay, enough's enough. Now we need to really hammer this message home. So Isaiah 58, and that's where the prophet Isaiah, this is after 700 years of the people of Israel rebelling against God. I think 700 years qualifies for long-suffering, right? That, that's long-suffering enough. So he says, okay, enough's enough. Isaiah, verse 1, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, do you see the different approach? This isn't a soft answer, 
right? This is, deep, this is hitting the nail on the head, taking the hammer, which is the word of God, and breaking the rock in pieces. Sometimes you have to deal with it like that. Do you see how this could translate into your personal life? You got a problem with somebody, deal with it gently, patiently, meekly, but after a while, you might have, you don't need to be ugly or mean. You don't need to say things that are trying to hurt them, but you might have to be a bit more forceful to say, you are hurting me. I'm in pain and this cannot go on. We, either we fix it now or we're gonna go get some help to fix this. See, so there comes a time when you can put your foot down like that. Uh, come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And he says in verse number three, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. So there Paul's explaining again what the problem is. They don't, some of them, do not accept Paul as a genuine apostle. They do not think that Christ is speaking through Paul. This is all just Paul's opinion, and Paul's saying this to puff himself up and gain his own following. He says, all right, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. Now, he's going to go on and explain what that proof is, and that's why I've given the title for my, the, my first point of my outline, the proof is in the power. They want a, a mighty piece of evidence. In their minds, they have their own standards as to what that would be. They, they want some thundering preacher, this, this wonderful, big, strong, strapping guy, thundering voice, speaking boldly, doing miracles. That, that's what they think. Now, Paul shows up. He's this small. We know this from history books, and also the Bible would, would help us think this as well. Paul was a small man. He had been beaten so many times. He's, he's a crippled man at this point. I mean, he, just, he doesn't walk in chest out and, you know, the Bible says. He, he doesn't, he's not like that. He comes in, he has a weak voice. He's not eloquent. He doesn't string his words together very nicely. Now, you wouldn't think that by his writing. His writing is quite eloquent because Paul was a very educated man. But when he would speak, it didn't come out the way that it would on paper. So here he is, he's got whip marks all over, his eyes are swelling, he's been beaten, his bones are all rickety, he comes to the pulpit and says, hello church, I, I, I want to preach to you today, and it's, it's, you're looking at this going, this guy's about to fall apart. Look at chapter 11, um, chapter 11 and verse number 6, you can see a little bit of what Paul said about himself, but though I be rude in speech... Now, guys, rude, not in that he's being ugly and mean. I've heard preachers take it like that. Say, Paul was rude, so bless God, shut up and listen to me. That's, <laughs> that's not the kind of rude he means here. Rude as in rudimentary, as in basic type of language, as in not very deep and eloquent, that type of rude. He's not polished. Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. We have, uh, we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. So guys, even though I can't express my thoughts perfectly all the time, I know what I'm talking about. That's what he's saying. Chapter 10, you can see a little bit about this again in verse 10. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. So when we receive a written letter from Paul, man, that, that really comes across heavy and clear and bold. But... His bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Man, it's hard to listen to this guy. Just can't put it all together. So that when they heard and saw Paul, they said, 
you don't look like an apostle. You don't sound like an apostle. But here's the question. What does an apostle look like? What do you want? What do you want? What, what does he sound like? In America, certain parts of America, if you do not preach in the high hum, you're not a real preacher. And I've done that for you here. I don't know. You guys remember that hack preaching? You know, say, now the Bible says, ah. And they got, that's the hack in the middle. Jesus came, ah, and then he died, ah, and then he, mm, he rose again. Ah. That's, yeah, see, some people, that's preaching. To stand here and say, Jesus died and was buried and rose again. That's it? That's all the umph? You're not a preacher. You're not called of God. Now, 20 years ago, I could, I could give you the hack sermon, right? I had the energy for it. I don't know if my rickety old body can, ha can handle that anymore. But what do you want in an apostle? They're going by appearance. D didn't Jesus say, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment? Isn't this the exact trouble that Samuel had? L let me show this to you. Come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Immediately you're going to remember this verse, but I'd like for you to see it. 1 Samuel. And Samuel, of course, he's a man of God, um, but he's still human. His initial response here was not correct. So Saul has been rejected by the Lord. And now Samuel has been deployed to find a replacement. In uh, 1 Samuel 16 verse 6 1 Samuel 16 verse 6 it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said surely the Lord's anointed is before him so this is Samuel he saw Eliab that's David's older brother Eliab's a tall strapping guy now Saul was the tallest of them all right Saul was head and shoulder head above the shoulders he was what we would know as about two point something something meters tall he's seven feet tall so he's huge Eliab was right up there with him. So when Samuel saw that, he said, uh -huh. that, that guy fits the mold. He could actually wear the king's robe. You know, we don't have to get any tailoring or adjusting done. He, he could wear those shoes. Verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance but the Lord looketh on the heart. So what are you looking for in a real apostle? What do you want in a real pastor, in a real preacher, in a real Christian? What should we be looking for? What is the proof? Is it in the power of their countenance and their stature, their physical structure? Or does it have to do with what they're saying and why they're saying it? You see, Paul's been putting the emphasis on that. I'm preaching Christ, I get persecuted, I don't quit. That speaks to the why I preach it. It shows the validity, the truth of it, that even though it's difficult, I'm still going to preach it. Let's come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 now. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I find that even... Uh, even in our times, right? This is still, this is an ongoing problem. It's not that just Samuel did it or the people in Corinth were doing it. Even now, if a church has a lot of money, right? And is able to build the fancy building. And, and, and by the way, that's not sinful, right? If a church wants to do that, help yourself. But to think then, 
look at that great fancy building with all the decorations man God must be doing something there because of the fancy decorations because of the building in Malawi I found this a lot when I got there they would ask me what church are you with I say Bible Baptist they say oh how many branches do you have now that's a legitimate question I don't mind them asking how many branches how many other churches in the country Uh, where did your church start what organization so how many do you have in America have you started worldwide and if we said no no this is our first church here in Malawi we're a brand new organization ah nothing and and they would completely discount it because we were not a worldwide entity well just think back to Acts chapter 1 the church in Jerusalem was not a worldwide entity at one point but it was the right church you see so you can't judge the church based on how many branches it has or the size of its building or you know the various programs that it has if our church were to hire out billboards and put ads on tv and the internet which again not wrong i'm not condemning that help yourself we could attract many many more listeners there's a good chance that we would have more visitors come to the church and great fine that's not a bad thing necessarily but it it says nothing about how true the preaching is It says nothing about how good or how right the church is. Any organization can advertise. That's business. That speaks nothing to the spiritual nature, to the heart of the church or the heart of the preacher. You've got to distinguish between those two things. You realize that the most popular churches or religious organizations in the world, they are that way because at one point in history, they held the political preeminence in their country. Just give you a th- I can see a couple of you thinking about it. <laughs> Just think about that. If you find a denomination, there is. The Roman Catholics have over a billion members. Why is that? Because for over a thousand years, they ruled the then known world. So naturally, as the outflow of that, they're going to have a lot of members. The same thing with Islam. They control, uh, controlled much of the Middle East. They pushed up into Europe for a bit and into the Far East and down into Africa. They have almost well, uh, over a billion members. But the size of their congregation or membership does not mean what they're preaching is true. See? So just because a, a particular organization has high ranking or a lot of members, that doesn't mean that it's right. You have to take what they're preaching and compare it with the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Paul says, For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. Now, he's speaking to the, what he said in verse 3. You seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. So what is the evidence that Christ dwells in Paul and is speaking through Paul? He says, you guys want something mighty. But Christ, he was crucified through weakness. That's what Paul presented to the people first off. When he showed up to preach, he looked very weak. If you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, just with physical eyes, is that strength or weakness? It's weakness, right? There he is hanging. He was nailed there by soldiers and stripped naked, and this is great shame, and this is complete weakness. Paul says, now, if you're going to condemn me for weakness, go ahead and condemn him too. If you want a proof of Christ in me, then you cannot forget that Christ also experienced weakness. But that wasn't the end of the story. Verse 4, though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. He overcame those physical challenges. In Jesus' case, he overcame death and the grave and was 
raised again and now lives unto God and seated at the right hand of God making intercession he is ministering to the people even though he had and suffered through weakness and pain and physical challenges and so forth same thing with Paul do you see how this relates to Paul's ministry Paul had challenges he had infirmities he had enemies just like Christ did but that didn't stop him even when Paul was stoned and died he got back up from that and kept on he said if you want proof of the power and the authority that I have look at the fact that even though I do have weakness I don't quit just like Christ he was crucified through weakness yet he liveth by the power of God for we also are weak in him but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you now that let's just take a moment and look at that phrase we are weak in him is that true are we weak because of Christ are we weak in him hold your place here come a little bit back to the left first Corinthians chapter 1 what were the Corinthians accusing Paul of they were accusing him of being weak so Paul takes that accusation and kind of claims it as, as his own. He says, okay, you think that I'm weak. The reason you think I'm weak is because of what I'm doing for Christ. So he kind of plays with the phrase and says, okay, I'm weak in him. What you consider weakness, not, not God's definition of weakness, but the world or the Corinthians definition of weakness. He says, so even though you count me weak in him, I'm still going to live by the power of God towards you. 1 Corinthians 1, you'll see, that, see the same thought here. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God verse 25 because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men now let's think about what Paul's written here he said that God has foolishness do you see that in the verse verse 25 the foolishness of God is there anything foolish about God obviously not but the Greeks were saying that what God did by sending his son to die for us was foolish so what the Greeks say is the foolishness of God is actually wiser than anything any man has ever said <laughs> isn't that something verse 25 he says the weakness of God is there anything weak about him well no but Paul's using the Jewish thought that the Messiah in their minds was supposed to be a conquering king supposed to come in and destroy the enemy wipe out the Romans and establish Israel as the chief nation on earth so here's this man who claimed to be the Messiah that's what the Jews thought he would do and yet the Romans nailed him to a cross and killed him so in the Jewish mind they think that's not strong that's the very opposite of strength that's weakness Paul says okay then what you what the what the Jews think is the weakness of God if if that is the weakness it's stronger than anything a man has ever done the fact that Jesus would humble himself even unto death and carry listen carry the sins of the world have you ever done something wrong to somebody 
and you haven't had a chance to apologize and make it right and, and you've been carrying around the guilt of that event, have you ever done that? And some of you maybe this morning brought some to church. You just got some guilt. Do you realize how heavy that is? That is a burden. That is a burden. Now imagine all of those burdens being put on one man. Now Jesus, you deal with all the mistakes, all the wrongdoings of man for all, for all time and eternity. Put them on him. How do you carry that? You better be pretty strong. And what the Jews said, no, no, that's weak. That was the strongest moment in the entire history of civilization. That one man could carry the sins of all mankind. Incredible strength. All right, so come back to 2 Corinthians 13. So at the end, for we are also weak in him. Why did they count Paul weak? Because his bodily presence, his ability to speak, he wasn't speaking like these other false apostles that were coming in amongst the Corinthians. Paul was going to try to follow the example of Christ. So, in, in so doing, look at chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. This is what Paul tried. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Do you see the approach he's tried to take? Meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's following Christ's example in preaching to the people. And they considered that weak. He said, all right, so if you want to say that I'm weak in him, I, I am going to overcome your negative comments and criticism and your unfair judgment of me. And I'm going to continue to preach, not because Paul has some you know, strong, indelible spirit that won't let him quit, because God gives Paul grace to keep pressing on, even though it's not easy. Yeah. Can you see how this could be true in your life as well? Sometimes you might be tempted to cut corners, whether it's in relationships, business, school, whatever it is, cheat the system. But instead of doing that, now you know you could get ahead much more quickly. You could get what you want if you just cut the corners. But when you do it the way that Christ would have you do it, the world looks at that and says, why are you not taking advantage of all these loopholes and cutting the corners? They see that as a mark of weakness. Say, no, even though you don't understand why, I'm going to keep doing this because in so doing, I'm pleasing the one that saved me and that's the best thing I can do with my life, right? You overcome those negative comments. Now, verse five, he goes on to the next piece of proof. We're not going to finish the entire passage, but verse five has a lot to say here. So he's, he's spoken to the proof that they're seeking, the power. If you really want to know about power, it's overcoming the weakness, and then verse 5, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? So this is why part two, or second point on the outline, is the proof is in yourselves. Do you see how many times he said that in the verse? Examine yourselves, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. He keeps saying, if you, if you need more proof, Look at your own testimony. Paul's essentially asking them, how are you saved? What makes you think that you're saved? What's your testimony? Now, if they're honest about it and they say, well, I'm saved because of what Jesus did on the cross, died, buried, rose again. He paid for my sins and he gave me new life. That's Paul's testimony as well. If you want proof that Christ is in me, well, let's first make sure Christ is in you. 
And then if you have the right answer to these questions, then you'll know that I have the right answers to the questions. But there's great advice in verse number five. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Let's do that this morning. Let's, let's take the test this morning. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're saved? Now, at the end of the verse, he said, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. The word reprobate means rejected. So rather than being accepted in the beloved, received by God, you've been rejected. You're outside of the body of Christ or the family of God. So he said, you, if you examine yourself, you should know how, that's the word, how that Jesus Christ is in you. You should know that. You say, but pastor, I don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is in me. I don't know how he is in me. Maybe then you're not saved. It, that's why he says at the end, except you be reprobates. Because if you're not saved, you're not going to be able to answer these questions. You, you will fail this examination. So I've, I've put together just a few things. I do not think this is a comprehensive or exhaustive treatment of the subject. But let's just go through a few questions and give the examination. I'm going to start with a question you may not expect for this. Have you ever in your life realized that you were guilty and in danger of God's wrath? And I'm speaking in the eternal sense. Has there ever been a point in your heart and your mind where you, you realized, you know what, because of what I've done, I do not deserve to enter heaven. I deserve to be punished eternally for what I've done. Has that ever crossed your mind? You'll be shocked how many people raised in a church, hearing about Christ Sunday in, Sunday out, but it's never crossed their mind why they need Jesus. You've heard me say this before, still very true. In order to get somebody saved, you first have to get them lost until a person first realizes their need for Christ. Why would they come to Christ? Does that make sense? We say that Jesus Christ is the Savior, right? Okay, what does he save you from? For, for the first 20 years of my life, I repeated the words Jesus is Savior many, many times, but I had no clue. Savior from what? To save someone is to rescue them. If you rescue someone, they're in danger. So what are you in danger of? Now, before you just say, well, saving me from sin. Yeah, but what are the consequences of sin? Let's get, let's get down to the understanding the nuts and bolts of this. Not just saving you from living a bad life, although that is part of it. He does rescue you from that. That's the temporal aspect of it. But eternally, he's saving you from the punishment that you deserve for breaking God's laws. Have you ever realized that? Because if you haven't, you say, well, I believe Jesus is the Savior. Okay, from what? What did you turn to him for and play, say, please, Jesus, save me? I want you to be my Savior. From what? I used to illustrate it like this in Malawi that somebody says, if somebody's standing in the middle of the road, there's no cars passing by, and this guy's in the middle of the road all by himself and he goes, oh, please help me, please help me, help me. I'm drowning, I'm drowning. I said, what would you think of that man? If he's in the middle of the road saying, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. I said, yeah, he's crazy. I said, right, 
because that's, there's no legitimate danger there. He doesn't know what he's asking for. Please save me from drowning. You don't know what you need to be rescued from. We will give you a different kind of help. <laughs> you need a hospital for a whole nother reason, right? That, that's just ridiculous to say, save me from water when there is no water. Now, if you're in the middle of the ocean and you just fell out of a boat and you said the same thing, oh, please save me, save me, I'm drowning. That makes perfect sense. Here comes the life raft. So before we get to I'm saved, first let's recognize what the danger is. If you've never come to that realization, we, we need to start there. Second thing, second question. What am I trusting for my salvation? Right? You have legitimately discerned I'm in danger, I'm in trouble and it's my fault. I broke the rules. Stop blaming everybody else. When you get to the judgment and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You cannot hand him the victim card. Say, well, you know, it was that horrible government I grew up in or so in this group or that people. No, no, you. What did you do? You as in you. Examine yourselves. Don't examine everybody else. Don't examine your ancestors. Don't examine what the last generation did. Examine you. What did you do? Maybe I can get to hack preaching now. Ha! What did you do? Ha! <laughs> sorry, I got a little worked up. I'm sorry. Okay, it's out of my system now. You've broken his laws. So God stands you there at the judgment and says, why should I let you live with me forever? What's your answer to that? Say, well, I did the best I could. Granted, maybe that's true, but doubtful because I really don't know anybody that's done the best they could all the time, right? If we're being honest, I haven't. I did the best I could, God. Okay, fair enough. God will acknowledge that here and there you did something right. But what about those things you did wrong? God cannot just wink at it and go, ah, no big deal. Because you did a few things right, we'll let that slide. That's not how it works not how it works God is holy upright he must judge those sins so when you stand before God will you say God I'm innocent how will you plead are you innocent or are you guilty innocent or guilty so I plead innocent based on what based on your life based on how you lived because if you're going to plead that everything has to be right if I go to court and the judge says how do you plead you've been charged with lying you've been charged with stealing you've been charged with murder and I said but judge I'm a good guy I've only lied once I've only killed once I've only stolen once guilty, guilty. it doesn't matter that the other 45 years were upright <laughs> I did it I'm guilty so what are you trusting to get you out of that mess that you put yourself in now if God were to ask me that today you know what I would plead I'd plead innocent and here's why not that I've never done anything wrong all of the wrong things I've done were charged to Jesus Christ. And we made a trade. He took my sins and he gave me his righteousness. This is what the Bible calls justification. It's just as if I'd never sinned because he gave me his righteousness. So I can plead innocent not based on my righteousness, but based on his righteousness. See? Question three. Do you recognize the work of the Spirit in your life? Unless you be confused by, well, some 
outward manifestation of something like speaking in tongues or something miraculous like that. That's, that's not what I'm asking at all. How do you know the Spirit's working in your life? Because after you get saved, you cannot do the same things you used to do and feel good about it. One of the evidences that you're saved is when you sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit and you feel bad. Whereas before, you would do that sin and feel real good. And now you go, oh, I did it again. I hate this. You can't hang out with the same company you used to and feel good about it. You can't use that same language you used to use and feel good about it. You will hear the Holy Spirit in your heart saying, hey, 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 stop that. You know why? You're a child of God now. So God will speak to you as he speaks to his children. I don't rebuke your children for what they do. I rebuke mine for what they do wrong. That's how I treat the kids in my family. If they do something wrong, gently, solid, hey, hey, booty, no, no, no. That's not how I treat somebody in your family. That's not my place. See? Now that I'm a child of God, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit. And he speaks to me like a father to a son. Do you have that inside? Is there any fruit? So what's the fruit? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it laying on of hand? No. The fruit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Are you becoming more like Christ? That's the question. That's what you'd want to look for. So time is short. We're not going to spend more time on that, but I'd like for you to take a moment and really think in your heart. Examine yourself. Know how that Christ is in you and prove whether or not you're in the faith. Lord, thank you for the time and the opportunity this morning to look at these very important things. We do pray that you'd let these things sink deep into our hearts. Help each individual here to take a few moments to examine themselves and bless our fellowship immediately to follow and the service after that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.